0: 12 today, Hebrews chapter 12, whoa, welcome, (laughs) phantom of the harvest opera, I'd like to uh, read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to take a little time uh, to soak in a bit of this passage today. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, please bless this time together in the Word. Allow us each and every week that we come together to look forward to what we may learn about you as we study the inspired Word of God. Thank you, Lord, that within these 66 books, We have everything that we need for life and for godliness. And we pray, Father, that you'll allow us to be students of it outside of a worship ministry. But as we come together on Sundays, in spite of the busyness of our lives, the health and financial and uh, just responsibility matters that can distract us, allow us to come with a focus each and every Sunday on what you have for us today. We need your spirit to work, and we know that you will because you've made promises about your word going out and it not returning without an impact, without an effect. So give us an opportunity to come together, hearts and minds, listeners as well as speaker, to find out what you have for us today in Hebrews chapter 12. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I only have to say gold, silver, or bronze for you to know that I watched a little TV in the last few weeks, and maybe you did as well. I don't know whether you love the Olympics or not. I I enjoy it every time uh, that it comes on, and believe me, I don't enjoy it because I would be capable of about 99.99% of the things that these people do. It really is pretty incredible when you think about it. Whatever you might think the value is of walking uh, on a beam, being able to jump and flip over and land on the beam without ripping both of the insides of your ankles off, which is what I am certain I would do. um, It's incredible what takes place and we're not just talking about Um, amazing skill sets but we are talking about endurance that is probably for most of us beyond our comprehension Um, I watched uh, some of a triathlon and I'll have to admit when it comes to some of the longer things I I very seldom sit down and will spend whatever the hours are necessary to see the whole thing Uh, I may fast-forward but uh, that's it's amazing to me swim a mile and then as if you didn't do anything hop on a bike drive for miles uphill and downhill, and then get rid of the bike and go ahead and run for 10K. I mean, I get tired walking through the aisles of the grocery store sometimes, so I really appreciate uh, the level of endurance that is necessary for these kinds of things. The reason I start off today with this phrase, gold, silver, bronze, is because everybody, uh, if, you, if you have, even if you're not watching the Olympics and you're paying attention to the news, you know that there are medals, you know, being put out there by individuals who have accomplished great things. And I found some interesting um, information in regards to that, and maybe you've heard this uh, quote, by the way. I, I have heard it associated with Dale Earnhardt. I do not know if he is the originator of it because it seems that other names of individuals come out on this, but he's he's the one who said, second place is just first place loser. Now, maybe you've heard it in another context, but I've heard that stated. And I mention that because in the gold, silver, bronze territory, you have to admit as wonderful as silver or bronze is, gold's still better. That's what everybody's shooting for. That's what everybody desires. And they've asked a lot of Olympic individuals over the years, and I don't know how many they've asked, so I really don't have any idea um, how accurate this is. But there are a lot of individuals who say the gold is so significant to them that sometimes silver does not leave an individual as happy as another individual who comes in third and is just thinking, wow, bronze, everybody else after me didn't get anything. So in other words, there is a joy associated with bronze because the perspective is, wow, look at all those other people that did not, but I made it. I I, I made it to the metal round. Whereas the silver individual is looking one direction and saying, just two and a half more tenths of a second or whatever it happens to be and I could have been there and we're not usually talking about gold by wildly uh, significant amounts of time or, or whatever many times it's very very close so gold silver bronze is intended to take us into the context of Hebrews chapter 12 because there is a race being spoken of here in this passage and the writer of Hebrews, as well as Paul in the Corinthians, <clears throat> takes some time um, to talk about uh, the Christian race as it relates to kind of the connection into the athletic world. Uh, there were both Olympics as well as the Isthmian games. I don't know if you're familiar with both, but the Isthmian games, probably what Paul was referring to in First Corinthians uh, when he's talking uh, about running the race and striving for mastery and things of that nature, and we'll look at that passage briefly today. <clears throat> but um, whether we're talking Olympics or the Isthmian Games, and they took place on opposite years by the way, so there's a little bit of a history there as to what each of them were. They had, both of them had athletic things uh, related to them. The Isthmian Games also included um, horse competitions, in other words, individuals doing some of what you might see in the present day Olympics, and there were even some musical competitions associated with that. So it, it, it was a different set of games, but because they were year one and three, and Olympics came every two and four for a period of time. Uh, Both of those are a legitimate possibility in terms of what's being referred to uh, when we look at these passages. But here's how I wanted to kind of frame Hebrews 12 for us today. Gold, silver, bronze, or uncle. Now if you're hoping to come to a conclusion about exactly what I meant for that, you probably won't be able to. But here's what uncle means in my mind. I give, because that's what I used to say if somebody had my arm bent behind my back as a kid, and they continued to lift my hand up further, cry uncle. The reason I'm saying that is because there are some things stated in Hebrews 12 that indicate to us that there is a tremendous danger in light of the fact that a race can be grueling and difficult. There is danger to the, to the possibility of us saying, I give up, I'm not even going to run this race. And so I want us to be thinking about that in this weekend that we close out uh, the Olympics, whether you've had a chance to enjoy some of that or whether you did not. And since we are talking about Hebrews 12 in light of a race, I also want to bring up two terms that will come into play in what I'm going to share with you today. First of all, the word rules. You really can't have Olympic games without rules. And even though it would not be the primary word in the Olympics, the phrase rules of engagement comes to mind as well. You could use the term rules of engagement in an athletic context, but most often the term rules of engagement really is looking at something more in the realm of law enforcement or military and things of that nature. I want to use both because I believe that in some measure in Hebrews 12, there's a practical look from God for us at the rules of engagement in participating in this Christian race that we're supposed to participate in. And the rules and the rules of engagement are an important piece of the process. Now, just think about it for a moment as it relates to the Olympics. I can work for four years or eight years or however many years to reach a particular milestone, represent my country at the Olympics, and take off one half second before the gun fires and I'm disqualified. That's not even a person who's deciding to give up. Can you imagine what it feels like to work that hard for that long and have that be a disqualifier? Now, it's true you're not allowed to start the race early, so I get it, But man, that is tough. They ought to to have at least a second category for all the people who started off too early and at least find out who the gold winner is of the people who do false starts or something. Uh, What about weigh-ins? There are certain of the Olympic competitions that require you to be within a particular realm. You can't weigh more than this and you cannot weigh less than this. And there is diligence to making sure that you arrive in that zone uh, that you've got to be in. Think about those people uh, diving off of uh, platforms into the water. The key is for my body to hit the water, having done all the things that I've just done in the exact order that they're supposed to be, and then make sure no water splashes up. I mean, it's our bodies, what do they expect? These poor people having to make sure there's no splash. But do you realize how close some of these individuals coming to diving into that water with very little splash and having rotated and turned and done all of these things? Incredible control. I have high regard for the things that they accomplish, but there are rules as it relates to who's going to get the best scores. And I don't know if you are frustrated by this as much as I am at times, And I know there's an awful lot of commentary that takes place in regards to the Olympics, but there are so many times when I'm watching something and I I don't have the hours to dedicate from the first word to the last moment in a particular competition. Many of them show up over a period of days, but then the commentators who probably were in the Olympics 5, 10, 20 years ago are saying, oh, that's going to be a tenth for sure. 10th for what? What what did they do? And usually the stuff they're talking about is, oh, arched his back too much. Feet came came apart just before they stuck at the landing. I mean, we're talking about seemingly tiny things. But with all of the standard involved in that, you can see it's hard work to get to these places. And at the very least, we ought to be able to honor the individuals who have poured themselves out for these kinds of things. And yet I'm going to say something, and it's not to disparage people in the Olympic realm, because I have high regard for what these folk accomplish. If you arrive at gold and yet you do not run a Christian race that is pleasing to God. You could get to the end of your life, and all of that gold, silver, bronze, whatever, meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. There's perspective for you. So running the race, in my understanding of Hebrews 12, is far more significant at some level as much as I believe we're allowed to hold these kinds of athletes in high regard. So let's talk a little bit about uh, r- rules of, of engagement. Uh, these, these could apply in a number of different contexts, but there are some more serious rules. I think of military engagement. Uh, there are discussions at the military level, when force may be used, where it's allowed to be used, against whom, how. Th- there are discussions in detail about these kinds of things. This happens in law enforcement as well. Um, There are actions soldiers may take without consultation. There are others that are forbidden unless they have received direct orders. There are actions that require explicit commands, in other words. Within the context of certain of our military groups, there are different levels for which engagement may or may not take place. There's a level of compliance that says, you don't have a right to put your hands on this person. There is a passive resistance where you can use your hands, but you're not allowed to break a bone or harm their life or their health. There's an active resistance where blows and even joint manipulations are a part of the picture. Yes, you are allowed to do that because this individual is actively resistant. There's assault of bodily harm where no weapons are involved, and there are different rules of engagement at that level. And then the worst one, assault of lethal force, where literally I have permission to take that life so that that life does not take mine. All of those are kind of piece of the puzzle. If you're part of the military, you're well aware of those kinds of things. If not, you may not realize there's a lot of detail given to individuals in law enforcement and military as it relates to these kinds of things. And what is the point? Rules of engagement are important. Now it's true in the midst of crisis, sometimes it's easy to make difficult it's hard to make difficult decisions, and sometimes we make poor decisions in the midst of the crisis as it relates to rules of engagement. I would suggest to you that that can happen to us as believers as well. Because we can be involved in the race or involved in whatever the responsibilities are of Christianity in the midst of the stresses of our day or the stresses of the week. We don't make the best choice or the best decision. And therefore, we lose opportunity to be the best testimony that we could be, to please the Lord with our choices. So I would say that as it relates to rules of engagement, whether we're talking about military or law enforcement or Olympics, or whether we're talking about it in relation to the Christian race, an excessively brutal response in any kind of rule of engagement would be inappropriate, but here's the one that I wanna talk about today as it relates to Hebrews 12, an excessively weak or soft response to the Christian race, because that is one of the things that's being spoken of here. So Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 talks about a Christian race. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the words that I find in Hebrews 12, those first three verses, because these words are so colorful, they're so specific, it allows us to understand what the author was talking about there, and I'll share some of that with you as we move along. Now let me make a proposition to you about where I would like to head as it relates to Hebrews 12. Christians who cry uncle will find escalation of conflict in their spiritual lives. I'll say that again. Christians who cry uncle will experience escalation of conflict in their spiritual lives. What am I suggesting? That at times we do not make the best decisions regarding the rules of engagement in the race we are called to, or in whatever it is we are called to as good soldiers of Jesus, which would be another of the metaphors that you find in scripture. Now I have two big ideas for you today, and I'll mention a few things under each of those, but I want these two big ideas to be the things that you take with you in terms of what's valuable coming from this passage. Here's big idea number one. Victory is absent in unbelief. Victory is absent in unbelief. I want you to think about the previous context to Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm going to ask you to turn briefly to chapter 11. So if you just turn back a page or two, if you have a Bible open there, or I guess if it's an electronic device, you just flip it, okay? But in Hebrews 11, we won't read it. The the whole chapter is a tremendous chapter. You're probably quite familiar with it if you are a believer. But in Hebrews chapter 11, we see some shining stars of faith individuals who showed themselves to have run the race in a way that was really pleasing to the Lord. And they are our examples. And when you get to Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, is a reference back to these chapter 11 shining stars. Since Hebrews 11 is so well-known, and Hebrews 12 at some level is a fairly familiar passage to most Christians, jump back to Hebrews chapter 10. Now we're into a little less familiar territory. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'd like to begin reading at verse 35. Therefore, and preserve their souls. Interesting. In the context of Hebrews chapter 12, 1, in terms of running the race, and in the context of Hebrews chapter 11, a number of individuals who ran the race well that we should look to and say, these are examples of how it ought to be done, we find in Hebrews chapter 10, leading up to that, a passage regarding some who shrink away from the task. I don't see those things as coincidental when I'm studying the scriptures. There are some individuals who shrink, and then there are the shining stars, Hebrews 12. Now let us run the race like we're supposed to do it. It's a very powerful passage, and it's a great reminder. And when I read a passage like that, I think to myself, Whatever the guy who wrote this meant by shrinking, I do not want to be one of the individuals who shrinks back from responsibility. Now, there's going to be an argument if you look carefully at the context, and I'll say this out loud for those of you who maybe have dug into Hebrews. There's an argument that maybe these chapter 10 individuals who are described as shrinking away don't even know the Lord, meaning meaning that they don't even have truth. They've not repented of sin. And I'm fine with that. That doesn't change that chapter 11 talks about people who do know the Lord and Hebrews chapter 12 is talking to people who do know the Lord. So I don't find chapter 10's allusion possibly to some people who don't know the Lord as problematic. I will also say that if you're going to be a good student of scripture, you're going to find something. Those who are believers can shrink away from their responsibility. It's not impossible it's something that happens, and I don't believe the admonitions of Hebrews twelve one through 3 would be necessary if there wasn't any shrinking Christianity to exist. If all Christianity was automatically going to run the race perfectly, get the gold, and have, you know, the Lord say, well done, there would be no necessity for a passage like this. So the necessity of the passage, for me first, because I got to study it and apply it to John. And then for you guys is pretty clear. So we find some faithful people in chapter 11 who were victorious people. We find some unbelieving people who shrink back. Therefore, we could say they are ruined people. They are failed people. And chapter 12, verse 1, then says, so turn back to Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I want to take a moment to talk about that phrase. Sin that clings closely could mean You have this sin, and she has this sin, and he has that sin, and I have this sin, and that's the one that is the most significant one for us. And the Bible talks about the fact that sometimes we have pet sins, that we have appetites in particular areas that we are drawn to. And believe me, you are not a wise believer if you don't recognize that and deal with that specifically. But I really believe when we get to Hebrews 12, verse 1, and it says, sin which clings to us closely is a statement that comes within this context. We have in chapter 10 unbelief. We have in chapter 11 belief. We have in chapter 12 individuals who are being encouraged that they must continue to do the right thing, i.e., be the believer that God wants them to be the sin that clings to us. Now, I want you to think about this, because maybe you'll want to wrestle with me on this contention, uh, and we can do that after church or Monday through Friday, but you won't get a chance to do it until the sermon's over. But here's my contention. I believe that in this context, the sin that so easily besets us is unbelief. Think about it. Oh, I have this problem with with some lustful things, or I have, some, I have this problem with wanting more in the financial realm. I have this problem. I just can't, I can't, or I won't tell the truth all the time. All of those things are separate sins. They may have separate results in our lives, but please understand me when I say this. Every sin that you and I can be drawn to is ultimately a matter of our unbelief, Think about that. If I didn't lack belief, I would not have to find some kind of resource in the lustful filth that's out there. If I did not believe, if, if, if I believed that God could meet my needs, I would not have to take what does not belong to me. There is always unbelief as foundational to our sins. So I'm going to say this to a crowd of individuals for whom there may be some different pet sins. Now I know you want me to say, I know you guys don't sin at all, but we'll talk about the people who live out there in the community. But the truth is, we all have some of that. Make the application. If you have an area of struggle... What is the territory of unbelief inside my soul that may be a contributing factor to this sin? I believe that is a healthy place for us to go if we're trying to figure out why did I do that or why do I keep doing that. I have people say to me all the time, why do I keep doing this? I don't even know. I want to help people with that. There is a simple answer to that because we're sinners and we just want our own way. But there are sometimes some specific reasons that we can find in the scriptures that will help us to sort through that. Does it help for you to simply believe whatever God says? Yes, but if you can understand, I don't believe God in this area, and maybe that's the reason why I've had this sin for the last 30 years, yes, that is going to be an advantage for you. Because it helps you to not only know what to confess, but to know why it's been a problem. And if you're going to set the tone for future victory, you're going to have to say no to some things. Think back to the Olympic people. They didn't spend the same amount of time some people did on their phones. They didn't spend the same amount of time watching TV. They did not spend the same amount of time going out and eating the junk food. We know, even if we don't have all the details, there were a great number of things that they said no to in order to accomplish the goal. Nobody says that in order to be victorious, it's just going to be a simple matter. It's not a simple matter. It requires effort on our parts, and you're going to find in Hebrews 12.1 that it's extremely clear that God understands, that it can be difficult and that it can be painful, because the words that are used here clarify that. So I want you to think with me that the opposite of faith is unbelief, and this is the sin potentially that all of us struggle with that leads to our particular bents towards sin, so my question to you is this, do you understand, do I understand the foundational nature of the sin of unbelief? Do I understand that? I believe unbelief underlies so many things. It's valuable for us to keep it in our head all the time. There isn't a day or a week that passes where I don't feel like I have to say, wow, Not only is that attitude wrong, but there's something I'm not believing correctly that allows me to think that this attitude is just fine. Work your way through that process unbelievers participate in all kinds of sins but they end up in hell that's worst-case scenario because God says I'm holy the only way you can end up in heaven is for you to be holy as well this is the kind of gospel truth that the world doesn't care for anymore the culture doesn't care for anymore but if God is holy and he is and he calls us to be holy the only way for us to be in a right relationship with him is this total perfection We're getting a dose of that, as Jason uh, teaches us um, in Sunday school class, about getting the gospel out. And one of the things that we didn't probably get to today that we'll certainly talk about in the future is this idea that the holiness of God sets him so far apart from people in every other way, we've got to get away from this idea of however we define goodness. And Jason talked about that today. Come out to Sunday school next week, by the way, because it's going to be a great lesson as it relates to getting the gospel out. Unbelievers participate in all kinds of sins, but they end up in hell, worst-case scenario, without Christ. Why do they end up in hell? At the simplest level, based on our context today, unbelief. Do you remember all the places in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, where certain things didn't take place because of individuals who didn't believe? Jesus went to certain towns and cities, and he was unable to perform certain miracles there. Why? Because of their unbelief. The children of Israel stood on the cusp of going into a land that God had promised them. He had already laid it out. I'm going to give this to you. There is no doubt about your victory, but their unbelief kept them in the wilderness for 40 years, while a whole generation of individuals had to die so that the new generation could have that fulfillment of, of God's promise because of individuals who rejected what God had said. Believers may well sin, but they end up without victory and they end up powerless because of unbelief. I want you to see the connection between those who don't know the Lord and those who do know the Lord as it relates to this word, unbelief. There is a connection between Christians and non-Christians in that territory, if if we are talking about non-Christians that are unsuccessful, unbelief. So think about that as we work our way uh, through the passage. By the way, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. So there's other places in this book that discusses this territory. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Hebrews mentions this numerous different times. Let me give you a, a simple definition of unbelief that I think fits what we are talking about here and is a, a model for the scriptural passages as well. Unbelief is failure to trust God based on what God has said. Unbelief is failure to trust God based on what God has said. Now, when I make a statement like that in terms of definition, we do presume some things. We are presuming that God has said. I'm not going to argue the point, I'm just telling you, I believe God has said, you believe God has said, this is a church that believes God has said, and here's where we find it, 66 books worth, Genesis to Revelation, every single word came from God. We are living in a day when the culture, even those who claim Christianity, have begun to gut this book, that is not okay with God. You can call yourself a Christian and say, I'll take a third of this. I don't like the rest of it for whatever the reasons. It doesn't work because what you have done is you have chosen to determine what God has said and what he has not said, and you weren't even around when this book was written, not to mention when God created the universe. So we have to recognize our limitations, folks. We are limited And I believe it's really imperative if we're not going to lose the battle within our Christian homes and churches, we cannot give up on every word that God has said. It's all important. There isn't any of it that isn't supposed to be there, and there is a huge Fight within supposed Christianity about whether or not we need to take all of this. It's okay because God's bigger than us, and because God's bigger than us, we don't have to worry about these details. And so I'm not going to accept the fact that God literally created the world. I'm going to go ahead and consider that to be symbolic because God's bigger than us. Okay. These are ways of saying, I'm carving this out of the scripture. Don't like it. I'm carving this out of the scripture. Don't like it. Danger there. And so we just can't allow that to happen in our church or in our families. Now, if unbelief is a failure to trust God based on what God said, what does unbelief ask? Here are some of the things that we ask ourselves if unbelief is a piece of the puzzle. Did God really say that? You know I didn't invent that. You only have to go back to the first few chapters of Genesis to have somebody saying, did God really say And that was pretty soon after God said it. You know, I suppose after hundreds or thousands of years go by, it would be easy to say, okay, I'm not really sure whether somebody said such and such. With Adam and Eve, God said it, and relatively soon after that, Satan is saying, has God really said it? So the questioning of whether or not God said it started at the very beginning, and it has not stopped at this point in time, and I want you to know that is the foundation of unbelief. So I am letting you know my demonic and my satanic theology today. Satan is an unbeliever, in case you were wondering where I stood. Here's the second question. Did God mean it? Did God mean it? Okay, now that we have determined that he said it, did he really mean it? So when God says, if you do this, then, did God mean that? The Bible makes it pretty clear we shouldn't test God on that. You want to know why? Because when we test God on whether he really means it, we find out God really means it. It's a good lesson for us to learn, and the earlier you learn it, the less you have to continue to relearn it over life. Most of us have to learn it time and again. I'll speak for myself, but I'm just saying that seems to be how it works. Now, let me give you a few practical questions in the event that unbelief has at any time haunted you. Practical question number one Do I hate sin? We know God hates sin. The Bible says that. We know that it's relatively easy for us to hate it in others. In other words, I hate your sin, and you hate my sin. But we kind of revel in our own sin, don't we? So do I hate sin the way God does? That's like old-fashioned discussion to ask a question like that. It should be Christianity no-brainer. Of course we're supposed to hate sin because God says that's where He is. In case um, some references would be of value to you, Psalm 97:10, we won't turn. You that love the Lord, hate evil." Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. "The fear of the Lord is to hate evil." Amos chapter five, verse 15. "Hate the evil, love the good." Those are just three examples of literally hundreds. In the scripture as it relates to that so God doesn't trivialize sin God doesn't tolerate sin God doesn't toy with sin and he doesn't treat it as if it isn't dangerous now I should say sin is not dangerous to God in the sense of it being life-threatening but I think we could say if we're going to parse this a bit sin is a threat to the character of God is it not is it okay for God to sin? Well, of course not. Was it okay for Jesus to sin? No, of course not. So in some ways, what brings all of us together, both humans in the universe as well as God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit themselves, is that sin is a threat. Now, do we find any evidence of that? I mean, is God trying to hide that in the scriptures? No. He makes it quite clear sin is a threat, and we need to recognize that. Practical question number two, am I sensitive to to unbelief's impact in my life Am I sensitive to unbelief's impact in my life? I want to contrast, in explanation of what I 've just asked their question wise. I want to contrast the creation of the world and sin coming into the world. They both happened relatively speaking, close together. Creation of the world. Father, Son and Holy Spirit move. Let us make man in our own image. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. What is the result of the creation of the world? Now, we could could detail that by saying water and animals, and here's the list of the animals, and here's all the planets, and here's the, you know. But what came out of the creation of the world? Light? Life? Warmth? I would even say heat in our context? fruit, fellowship, relationship. God creates the world, and those are the things that we have. Light, life, warmth, fruit, fellowship, and relationship. Contrast, Sin comes into the world. Genesis 3, 6. She took and did eat and gave to her husband and he did eat. It seems so simple. It seems so benign. How could anybody with any kind of common sense believe that simply eating a piece of fruit off of a tree would plunge the human race into sin? How could anybody believe that? Because it's what God said. We believe that. What came into the world as a result of sin? Darkness, death, cold, unfruitfulness, broken fellowship, broken relationship. There's the contrast. Now, if you don't believe the initial Genesis 1-3 story, you are going to be struggling with all the rest of the stuff in that book because it goes on for 66 books to allow us to understand exactly why the Genesis story was so significant and how it has impacted us. Now, let me introduce you today to Vival, V-I-V-A-L. I don't think you'll find it in the dictionary. I want to introduce you to Vival because... When sin came into the world, we needed revival. So I would contend that when God created the world and gave us light and life and warmth and fruit and fellowship and relationship, we could all sum that up with my new word, vival. but I like the idea that we can sum up all this business of creation in a simple way and I love that it helps me to understand how unbelief has impacted this world we live in because the need for revival came once sin came into the world you see sin destroys Bible and sin keeps us from revival. Sin prevents revival. I'll only make one brief political comment today. Leadership will change somehow in our nation this year. I do have my own opinions, and many of you do. And we don't, by the way. We have a church where I'm kind of happy about this at some level. We we are not monolithic in terms of our um, uh, political views and things of that nature. But can I pull all of us from our different views for whatever the reasons, even though yours are better than mine? Can I pull us back from that and simply say, most Christians will contend that what we need more than political change is revival. Don't we agree on that? We agree on that. The politicians can't bring that. I mean, unless they happen to be revived themselves. And believe me, that's rare. So it would seem that if revival is going to exist in a nation, it's going to have to happen through God and his spirit and the people of God who are dealing with their unbelief. So let me Declare that when revival does not exist in you, in me, in our families, in our churches, it doesn't exist because of unbelief. Oh, that's just too broad of a statement. Think about what the belief issues are that are in you right now and work your way through the process because I believe that God wants us to make progress. On the unbelief in our lives if we're ever going to experience revival before Jesus comes or before we go home to be with the Lord wouldn't it be wonderful to have that I mean most Christians will say yeah wouldn't that be great but it's not gonna happen because I'm gonna continue to live the way I've been living for the last ten years you see how it works folks we can say we want it forgive me for being so bold we don't want it we don't really we talk a good talk, but that's not what's going on in our lives. And I don't do it to rebuke you, I do it because I have to rebuke me. And you get to hear what the Lord's been laying on my heart recently. Third practical question Am I dealing with unbelief specifically? This is where we make this kind of transition to, okay, you've declared that Hebrews 12 seems to be talking about unbelief as this primary sin, and I agree that that is true, but it would be inappropriate for us to not recognize that sometimes my sin comes to me in the form of I sin, E-Y-E, heart sin, tongue sin. So our sin does come to us in different ways. Isaiah 59, if you really want to dig into a passage that lays out the way sin has impacted all of us in physical ways, feet, tongue, hands, you name it, it's very, very clear there. So it's a helpful passage. Why are we talking about dealing with unbelief specifically? Because unless I come to the conclusion that my eye sin is getting me into trouble or my heart sin is getting me into trouble or my tongue sin is getting me into trouble, it is not possible for me to begin this process of truly dealing with unbelief. So they are connected. In relation to heart sin, I think of Uzziah, Second Chronicles chapter 26, when he was strong... His heart was lifted up to his destruction. Don't you love the way God puts things in his word? When he was strong, meaning Uzziah, when Uzziah was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. Solomon. It came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after their gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God. 1 Kings chapter 11. And the Lord stirred up an adversary into Solomon. After that, a divided kingdom comes into place. And you're hard-pressed in the divided kingdom to find revival, even though there are few individuals that actually live that out at some level. So that second or or third uh, practical question, am I dealing with sin specifically? It is imperative that we be willing to work through this process of whatever it means to identify unbelief in us as it relates to some of the detailed sin. big idea number two. We said big idea number one was basically this, all sin is unbelief and victory is absent in unbelief. There's the big idea. Second big idea, victory is assured through applying God's rules of engagement. Now you see the tie-in to how we started off this message. God's rules of engagement will allow us to bring belief to our Christian life and to our Christian race. I'm reading just a portion from a 1940 speech. Some of you will recognize it, even though it was an eternity ago for, the, for most people here. To form a An administration of this scale and complexity is a serious undertaking in itself but it must be remembered that we are in the preliminary stage of one of the greatest battles in history that we are in action at many other points in Norway and in Holland that we have to be prepared in the Mediterranean that the air battle is continuous and that many preparations such as have been indicated by my honorable friend below the gangway have to be made here at home in this crisis I hope I may be pardoned if I do not address the house At any length today, I hope that any of my friends and colleagues or former colleagues who are affected by the political reconstruction will make allowance, all allowance, for any lack of ceremony with which it has been necessary to act. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Recognize those words? Winston Churchill. God give us leadership like that guy again in our nation but I'm not here to talk the politics so much as to say Churchill's encouraging words which don't sound all that encouraging were absolutely realistic as it related to the race that had to be run in that day and God does the same for us in his word he lets us know the reality as it relates to the race, and we are supposed to be running this race with endurance, with patience. Now I want to talk about the word race, because we start off talking about the Olympics, and I say race, and you think running you know, to whatever, whether it's 10K, 50K, a million K, whatever it happens to be, that's what we're picturing. Here's the picture that I get when I take a look at this root word here. This word race in the original language, agona. Agona. Blood, sweat, toil, tears. God does not fake us out with pretense about what Christianity ought to look like, or what we will experience as believers. Though there can be joy in our lives, and there should be, because in the midst of obedience and holiness, God says, joy can come. But even in the midst of that, there is agony. Well, I don't want to hear that there's agony in the race. I know. I don't like it either. The idea that agony should be something we strive for seems a little crazy, but hey, we've got the Olympic story out there in front of us over the last few weeks saying there are a load of people who were willing to agonize for years to accomplish those goals. So not only do I appreciate what they have done in the physical sense, but I love the story that allows me to grasp something that God wants us to grasp in his word, and that is there's going to be agony to real Christianity that involves believing. Let us run with endurance the agony before us Christians. Have we forgotten the agony of the race? And has the agony of your race caused you to cry, uncle, and live without victory? Now, you know what the irony is, and I wish I didn't know this from personal experience, but I do. You can be in less pain and be in worse health. As I sit in my easy chair, watching people swim, and then ride their bikes, and then run, they're in pain. You can see it on their faces. We've got to get to the end of this. We're pushing, pushing, pushing. And I'm sitting in my chair, I'm saying, boy, I'm not in any pain at all. Oh, is that ever deceptive. Because the less pain of my easy chair is not necessarily the place of the greatest health. Wow. Physical and spiritual examples galore out of that. So what are God's rules of engagement? I'll close down with these three things. I see them here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So let me share the rules of engagement. It took us this amount of time to get to this place. Here's what I believe they are. God's rules of engagement for believers who are going to run the race, the agonizing race that God's called us to. Rule number one, victorious Christians will endure the agony victorious Christians will endure the agony. I'm not looking at agony in the sense that we ought to hate being a believer or we ought to hate whatever it means to draw closer to God or we ought to hate whatever it means to come to the workday or to witness to somebody about Jesus even though they say something mean-spirited. But there's going to be agony and we need to recognize that and victorious Christians will endure it. So there is a training and a competing terminology that really is a piece of what it means for believers to endure. And then reminding you once again of the Isthmian games, which I already alluded to, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, uh, Paul is speaking there, probably a reference to these games that we had talked about, and he is saying, everyone that strives, there's the word, agony, the word strives, same root, everyone who strives for mastery is temperate. In other words, you've got to learn to say no to some things if you're going to follow through on this. But then Paul says later in that same passage, I keep my body down. The word is knockout punch. The word is eye blackening It really sounds pretty brutal, but he is making reference to the fact that there is a discipline that comes if he's going to run the race well. So practically speaking, I ask you this question as it relates to this first rule uh, of rule number one of, of engagement. When did you stop agonizing as a believer? When did you stop? Can you identify that? When did you stop delivering the knockout punch? Well, I've never agonized. I've never delivered the the knockout punch. you got work to do. But if you have, and you're just not doing it now, then we've got work to do. So let's move ahead as it relates to this agonizing and this delivering of the knockout punch. The second of the rules of engagement, victorious, Christians will deliver that knockout punch. They will deliver it. First Corinthians alludes to it, but I believe Hebrews 12 is saying the same thing when it says endurance. You got to run the race with endurance. The principles are the same there. Rule number three, victorious Christians will look towards the finish line. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking unto Jesus. This is not a minor piece of what we're talking about. It is significant, but it's the way we close down today as we talk about this. So as it relates to the race, this Christian race, looking back, past, it's not going to be particularly helpful for us. Looking down is not going to be particularly helpful for us i believe there's a heaven blindness that comes if we only think about today if we only think about the next step so pa- the past stuff can be a struggle looking at only today can also be a struggle and i think of this heaven blindness in a much less spiritual sense when i think of the other way that one can be blind because one could be blind from birth, that would be one form of blindness, and they couldn't do anything about that, and you have to try to work through the issues there. But what's being spoken of here is the idea of blindness that is somehow intentional. Now, you might say, why would anybody have intentional blindness? It seems crazy. But then I remember growing up and watching the Three Stooges. I can't see! I can't see! What's the matter? What's the matter? I've got my eyes closed you nitwit. If you didn't watch the Three Stooges, I know there's no context for that, but they really made me laugh. Sometimes we're blind not because we were born that way, but because we have closed our eyes to the truth, and that is inexcusable. When we look away from truth rather than looking to Jesus. And looking unto Jesus has something to do with future. It has to do with hope. It has to do with heaven. Where is Jesus right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, the place of power, the place of authority. And so we look to Jesus. What did Jesus do? He endured the cross. He despised the shame and he's sitting down at the right hand of God. So what good does it do us in the midst of our race to be looking to Jesus? When we look to Jesus, he is an example of endurance, and so we will be able to endure more, I believe, when we are looking to him. And he needs to despise the shame. Whatever the issues might be of being a believing Christian in an unbelieving culture, yeah, there's going to be some shame to that. You really could have some nasty things said to you on social media because social media is really easy for for people who don't know you to say horrible, nasty things. Some people would say it to your face too, but most of them, if you met them in the store, you'd bump into them. They'd say, "Oh, sorry, excuse me, have a nice day." They're just really gutsy in the midst of their social media, um, you know, yells and screams at people. So we look. At Jesus because he's at the right hand of God which is the place of power and the place of authority what is the value of looking to Jesus believers do not have to worry about being caught up in unbelief when they're looking to Jesus Jesus was resolute about the cross he endured things that he didn't deserve because he was 100% perfect and took all of these things on himself I mean at the very least you and I would have to say we deserve some of what comes at us based on our poor choices. So in closing down today the question is this have you cried uncle? Would there be room for more belief in your life as a believer to aim a little higher for gold silver bronze? And then to see how God works in our church ministry and in our families as a result of that. And I would say, yeah, there's, there's room. Let's consider that. Because crying uncle really is no way to live the Christian life and to run the race. Victory is absent in our unbelief and victory is assured by applying God's rules of engagement to endure the agony, to deliver a knockout punch, and to look to Jesus. We learn a little From Hebrews 12, from the Olympics, and from some words of uh, engagement. How to engage. Let's pray. Father, please work in our hearts. Please allow us to care much about what you care for, to love what you love, to hate what you hate to have a sense of understanding about how unbelief can dig deeply into our hearts and manifest in many different ways. So this challenge to our people today is to move from unbelief to belief. For those who know Jesus, it may involve a matter of confession or determination to restart, to, to pick up that baton and to run again. For those who may be here today who might not know Christ, and there could be some, Lord, who, who have no gospel context, who have no background in terms of what the Scripture teaches. And for them, belief would begin with looking to Jesus at the cross because he died for their sins. And not only did he die, but he rose again, meaning that he was powerful enough to conquer death. So whatever our issues with unbelief. I pray that as we close today, that there will be people who will be prayerful about what their needs are. And I'm asking, Lord, that you'll allow someone to come to Christ today, some believers, to take some steps to move back in the realm of serving more faithfully, and allow all of these things to impact our church ministry for God's glory and our community as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: thank you for the cross thank you for the price you paid bearing all my sin and shame in love you came and gave amazing grace you for this love, Lord, and thank you for the nail-pierced hands. You washed me in your cleansing flow, and now all I know is your forgiveness and embrace. God